Hello, and welcome to another episode of the KPMG Future of Tax podcast series for multinational tax leaders. In today's episode, we'll focus on what has been perhaps one of the most groundbreaking developments in the global tax landscape in recent years. The emerging agreement around the establishment of a global minimum tax coming out of the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 work of the OECD since 2019. The OECD has been working on a package of proposals to deal with the tax issues that arise from increasingly digitalised and globalised businesses and economic systems. But many expected multilateral agreement on the concept of a global minimum tax to be a lot further off than is proving to be the case. I'm delighted to be able to introduce two deep thinkers on this topic. Melissa Geiger, Global Head of Strategic Corporates for Tax and Legal Services for KPMG International and partner with KPMG in the UK. And Manal Corwin, Principal in Charge of KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice with KPMG in the US and Global Tax Policy Leader for the Americas region. Melissa and Manal, thank you both for joining us today. Hello. Hello. As we know, global minimum tax is a top of mind issue not only for tax leaders, but also for CEOs. In the latest research coming out of the KPMG CEO Outlook survey, 77% of CEOs said that the proposed global minimum tax regime was a significant concern to their organisation's growth goals. This is likely stemming from the substantial uncertainty around how it will impact their businesses. I'm hoping today's discussion with you both will help provide some clarity. There's so much to say on this subject. I'm simply going to hand over to you both. Melissa, perhaps we can start with you. Thank you. Well, definitely many of the organisations that we work with and some of the tax professionals around the world have characterised this as the biggest tax development of a century. And I think I would probably agree there was certainly a big G7 announcement showing their support for global minimum tax as part of the agreements that the G7 premiers announced in that beautiful, if a little bit windy part of Cornwall um, in the UK earlier in the year. And the big announcement was the support of the 15% global minimum tax. But clearly, there wasn't a level of detail in that type of announcement on base or timeline, just about more to follow. And and we have had some more follow that announcement. And I think, Manal, it would just be useful to kind of talk through what some of those aspects are that we've heard from the inclusive framework. There's a bit more than the 15% and what we're seeing sort of happening right now. Yeah, absolutely, Melissa. I think the agreement was striking in just the ability to have reached consensus among so many countries on a a fairly complex, uh, you know, we talk about it as a min tax, but it's a pretty complex set of rules that have typically been the domain of domestic law, things like CFC rules and and countermeasures, anti-base erosion measures. And the agreement on this common approach is really quite remarkable. And they're now up to 133 jurisdictions who've agreed. So in addition to agreeing the rate, which obviously was an important central piece of it, they have agreed the different approaches to this choreographed collaborative approach to making sure that cross-border income is subject to this minimum level of tax. So it's important to note that we're this isn't an agreement to make everybody change their statutory domestic rates to the minimum, but really agree to these systems that allow countries who choose to follow the common approach to play a part in ensuring that income is subject to the minimum. So the notion of the rate, the notion that it is a common approach, um, and understanding that not every jurisdiction is required to follow 
these rules, but to the extent they are part of the agreement, they need to allow other countries to adopt either the income uh, inclusion regime, the under tax payment regime, and then the subject to tax rule. And then should countries choose to follow the common approach, an agreement that they would follow along the uh, the terms of the agreed mechanics that, that are going to still unfold. They've demonstrated agreement on a threshold. So what level of revenue companies would need to have to be included, though they've given permission to countries that have income inclusion regimes to go below the threshold with respect to their own residents. They've cited and made reference to some exclusions. So we know there's going to be some carve outs, but we're waiting to hear uh, more about that. So really quite a bit of detail in a short document with a lot more to come. Melissa. I agree because we all heard 15% and then there was further and that obviously people think about the income inclusion rule and actually lots of conversations I have with clients are around income inclusion rule and 15% and actually it's the focus on things like this under payment rule or subject to tax rule hasn't got the same focus but actually when clients start to look at that they can see some of these will actually be just as important potentially for them as the rate and equally could be quite complex in terms of calculating or thinking about and making sure they understand for their for their global profile as well. Right. And that is the key point that the global min tax agreement is achieved because of these different regimes operating to ensure that income is going to be subject to the minimum, not because the minimum is being imposed by any necessarily one country. So the income inclusion regime, the under tax payment rule, as well as the subject to tax rule with respect to developing countries are all pretty fundamental to the overall agreement. Now, one thing um, we've we've noted um, in, in the release that uh, you know we put out globally on the topic is the language that was included in the statement didn't make any reference to specific approach for managing timing differences. And, and we all know that, you know, often income inclusion regimes, CFC regimes have been the province of domestic law. And in general, domestic tax regimes will recognize that timing differences can change the base and has an impact on the way tax is imposed. So while the blueprint, the Pillar 2 blueprint, had contained some detailed carry forward approaches to be considered as part of Pillar 2, we don't see reference to that in the statement that has emerged. What are your thoughts on that, Melissa? Um, and uh, how would you interpret maybe the silence in the agreement? I mean, I think that's one of the key questions, because when we were sort of talking about, you know, 15 percent of what and how would you calculate it? Um, certainly a lot of the questions I had from clients and actually if you think more in the finance area, so FDs and CFOs is, well, am I going to have to do different accounting for this? And those of us that were in-house at the time remember the difficulty of getting country by country reporting numbers together. The first time we had to work out how we were going to do that and what was included and what wasn't and some of the practicalities of what sounds quite easy of working out what you're paying in each country and what making sure that base is right. So, so I actually think that is going to be very important. I don't think at the moment we know that much about exactly how that's going to be done. But I think what is good is it's clearly on the agenda to consider it. And certainly I expect in any sort of either lobbying or where people are talking to governments or, or understanding what's happening, this sort of deferred tax accounting, what might happen in terms of the accounting base, that's going to be a key issue, I expect, because that's the foundation on which you start to do these calculations. So without that, you know, there's a lot of challenge, definitely. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, the other thing actually that we talk about is the scope. And you, you've sort of 
touched on it a little bit there in terms of the threshold being the 750 million euros um, determined under BEPS Action 13 and country by country reporting. But it was interesting that countries are free to apply that to multinationals headquarters whose revenues fall below the threshold. And again, there's exceptions and it allows countries to do things differently, which of course gives administrative burden, makes things harder. I don't know what else we know really about those exclusions or any implications relating to that. Well, certainly on the threshold, again, that is a nod to the fact that this has been often the domain. I mean, certainly on the income inclusion regime side, and you think about CFC regimes or other ways in which countries have traditionally taxed the offshore activity of their domestic entities. I think the nod to that being the province of domestic policy is to say, with respect to your own multinationals, if you want to eliminate or reduce the 750 million euro threshold for the application of the income inclusion regime, that that's fine. And, you know, an example of that is the U.S. guilty regime, which will be the version of, of the income inclusion regime, at least from the perspective of the U.S., though there's a number of reforms expected, has no threshold for its application with respect to U.S. multinationals. It is interesting that 750 million threshold also applies with respect to the undertax payment rule under the agreement. Um, the U.S. shield proposal, which is currently at least out there for the administration, actually applies a lower threshold um, at 500 million. And notwithstanding the agreement having given license for countries to have no threshold or a lower threshold with respect to the income inclusion regime, that was not understood to be the case with respect to the under tax payment rule. So I think it does raise the question that, for example, regimes like what's being proposed for the U.S. shield that has a lower threshold would have to be adjusted to adhere to the agreement here. There are mention of other exclusions, um, as, as you alluded to, Melissa, you know, exclusions for government entities, international organizations, nonprofit organizations pension funds or investment funds that are ultimate parent entities for multinational groups. So here again, not surprising from where we were, um, I think we'll continue to see development of exclusions. There was reference in the agreement to um, exclusion for international transportation and shipping. There's reference to the possibility of an exclusion for companies in the, in the first year of their multinational activity. So I think that will continue to develop. So of course, there's Lots of uncertainty that we expect around, um, you know, we have we have the rate, but there's going to be more uh, uncertainty to come with respect to a lot of these pieces until they get to more solid details on how this is all going to unfold. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, something we reflected on our, ourselves actually was, you know, what, what might this mean for things like environmental reliefs or patent boxes or other areas where governments have wanted to have their own tax policy, they've wanted to promote growth and investment. Tax is obviously a key lever that they can use to do that. And the interaction of what global minimum tax is going to do with that for governments. And, and we're looking at governments thinking about COVID, thinking about raising revenue, but also thinking about jobs and investment. And I think so far that hasn't been addressed, but there is the issue of carve outs. And it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, happens there or whether actually 15% is seen as that effectively this is the floor and that you can give a benefit down to 15% from often rates in developed countries are, are much higher than that, but you can't go any further than that. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. I suppose it's a bit crystal ball gazing there, isn't it? Yeah, it's such an important point because I think it does raise, you know, what this wasn't an attempt to harmonize, but it does raise the floor for taxation. And as you noted, tax policy is often um, used by uh, countries and economies 
opportunities to um, stimulate investment, to attract investment, to incent behaviors that are viewed as uh, optimal for growth and and for the economy and ESG objectives. And we see that in the climate space. We see it in, in lots of different spaces. When you have a floor like this subject to the, the agreement on exclusions, it does neutralize a little bit the ability to use tax policy to drive outcomes, desirable outcomes, attract investment, you know, uh, reward uh, behavior that is viewed as, as good for the economy, social good, et cetera. And that will be a challenge going forward as to how broad they want to start applying exclusions or, as you said, just say, well, the starting point now is 15% and any of these incentives or behaviors you want to drive have to be done above that 15% floor, which of course is going to then leave more room for some jurisdictions and less for others, depending on what their top rate is. So the more the compression between the min tax rate and the headline rate in the jurisdiction, the less room there is to use tax policy as a tool for some of these behavioral and investment choices that countries are seeking to um, incent. So, so I think, Melissa, also, I think with respect to open issues, there's a number still being worked through. Any thoughts on how you, how we're, how they're going to get there and what that means for businesses who are trying to grapple with how to absorb all of these changes? Yeah, no, I, I think definitely because, you know, obviously we hear these announcements, we start to think about some of these things conceptually that we've just, just touched on. And then as a tax director, you're sitting there looking at your group. You've obviously now got your country by country reporting numbers. You know what you're doing for your in terms of your own accounting, but you're thinking, well, what are these implications going to have, you know, for my group and what's that going to what's that going to look like? And clearly CFOs will all have been reading the FT, they'll have been reading other other newspapers as well, of course. And uh, they'll be talking about the G7 announcement and saying, well, what does this mean? Is this sort of BEPS 2.0? What else, what else do we need to do? Where are we with our own tax position? Um, very valid questions. And I think the heads of tax will be saying, there's a little bit of uncertainty. You know, here are the here are the question marks. But I think what we are seeing people do is is think about modelling what that would mean. So looking at tax regimes, especially where they have benefits around the world or where they you know have incentives, deciding what the implications of that would be. Looking at alongside pillar one, which obviously we're not talking about today, but thinking about that and the nexus approach and, and allocation to local market, and then thinking, well, what's this going to mean for compliance burden? But also, what might it mean in terms of business decisions we're making, supply chain decisions, location of intellectual property, development of intellectual property, moves into digital, direct-to-consumer, etc. So actually, while some people talk about BEPS 2.0 as being sort of a distinct project potentially for the heads of tax, let's think about the impacts of BEPS 2.0, I actually think a lot of the heads of tax will be thinking about it more of as how does this impact each of the different things that I'm doing and how might it impact each of the areas that we're looking at as, you know, our business partner as we think about supply chain changes or we respond to our market for COVID or we think about how, how our business is best operated and, and how we do things in a, in a good structural way for our supply chain. And so actually, I think it becomes a bigger part of those questions rather than the question all on its own. And it sort of adds an area of complexity to that because obviously the business always wants certainty. So they say, well, what's the impact? And, and often we then as tax people, especially at this point, have to go back with, well, it will depend on this and it will depend on that. But I think 
a lot of the businesses I see, they are very engaged at the head of tax level with the debate. You can see the heads of tax are following this as it goes and inputting. I think the other interesting bit, you know, both of us sit on the respective boards for KPMG is, is the sort of CFO C-suite level as well. And I mean, it, you know, they're interested in what does this mean? What's the next level for tax? And, and they're thinking about it in terms of financing the tax team, making sure they put enough resources to that, but also in terms of business risk. What does that introduce? So I don't know. I think in, in Europe, certainly, there's a lot of discussion around that. I don't know if that's the same in the US and you're seeing the same in your market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, we are seeing interest at all levels and expectations for tax directors to brief their, their board and C-suite much more frequently about the developments. I mean, I think the, it's a product of th this is such monumental change that we haven't seen just the level and scope of cooperation and collaboration and the shift in tax policies that have been around for, for so long is novel in many ways. We saw some of that in BEPS 1.0, but, but but this is even more significant. And again, I keep going back to the point, partly because where they're trying to coordinate a whole set of rules that have been largely the, 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 the province of domestic policy, which you know has reverberations in, in many ways. So absolutely the, at the tax director level, wanting to understand the technical pieces, the impact. And as we say here, you know, in the US, the sausage is still being made. So the ability to understand the technical, the technical considerations, the technical rules model impacts as just to inform a point of view to, for those who want to engage in the process and government. I think, and the OECD are certainly welcoming that engagement to understand how these rules should unfold so that they are administrable and understandable and achieve the policy outcomes that, that governments are seeking. It does require a lot of collaboration. So understanding the technical uh, rules, understand, modeling impact, and then maybe informing a point of view is really important. I think at the at the CFO and C-suite level, they want to understand what the what the financial implications will be. How quickly will the changes happen? As you said, the compliance burdens. You know, what does it mean for the size of the department or the, the kind of expenses I need for outsourcing? Controversy. I think businesses are really concerned, as we know, intended or not. Anytime you have novel law, and in this case, with coordination on novel law with multiple jurisdictions, we can expect that before things smooth out, there'll be a, a significant increase in audits and controversy, competent authority, potential disputes between jurisdictions to get this this right. So what does a business need to do to prepare for that, to prepare for coordinating around uh, managing controversy and uh, addressing when they need to invest um, in that and uh, and plan for it. So a fair amount of consideration on all of those aspects. Maybe one other area, because it's also been very a very big focus of C-suites, is the tax and ESG and how this all connects. So as laws change, as businesses think about what does it mean for their operations, what's the cost and should there be an operational change, they're also thinking about well, what's the right thing to do? You know, what's the what's the responsible uh, approach to responding to potentially real cost impact as well as competitive impact, but also mm -hmm. wanting to balance it with their tax policies and tax strategies from a responsibility and, and ESG perspective. So uh, every part of the organization in many ways is involved. And, and you can tell when, when tax hits the mainstream press regularly, you know yeah. that this is an issue that your board is going to be very focused on and want regular briefings and that's sort of where we are, certainly in the US and I know in Europe as well. And that's one thing where we don't, we're not always on the same page, but I think on this, we are definitely on the same page. 
across the yeah. Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on a really important point there with, with the ESG agenda, because I think it, it's, it's then more about, you know, are we paying the S part of that as well? Mm-hmm. Are you paying the right amount of tax? And what is the right amount of tax? And now this is set a threshold for tax. What does that mean? You know, re-looking companies are then looking at their own ESG statements, what they stand for, how this fits in with that. And, and you know, that's an important piece of work. And, and as the rules develop, making sure you're complying with them, not just the compliance burden, but also thinking about the impact of that. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a very interesting area. I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's October is the next time that we feel like we're going to get more detail, isn't it? I think. But do you have any any sense of just how quickly all of this may or may not come in? Because it sounds from all the things we've been talking about, there's quite a lot still to be decided, even if actually they've been quite swift, I would say, because they've made this policy intent agreement, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, any yeah. thoughts? I think all along throughout this project, the goal has always been to achieve enough to keep the momentum going and keep everybody on board that this is going to succeed so that they can move on to the next stage. And we've seen the timelines shift and drift a little bit. But in each case, they were able to keep moving forward because there was enough movement, enough achievement to say, to declare victory and move on. So I think that October is not going to be any different. I think it's not realistic to believe that they're going to have all of uh, this settled, all the T's crossed and I's dotted by the October timeframe. I think they're probably in a process of trying to figure out what are the key components of both Pillar 2 and Pillar 1. We've been talking about the global mint tax, but we can't forget that Pillar 1 is, is a really, really critical part of this overall deal. The two are tied together um, and they don't have a deal if they can't make progress on both simultaneously. So I think that the work they're working furiously to filling out some of the gaps that are necessary to have an answer to in October in order to buy the time to get to the next milestone. So I've, I'm sort of envisioning a bit of a rock climb. And if you can just get your foothold on a few more, you go to the next level. I'm not sure we're quite near the bell yet, but uh, I I do think um, I I think they're pretty motivated to succeed. So I expect to see some declaration of victory, but probably not as comprehensive as maybe they would have hoped. No, I can see that. And actually, as you were were describing that, I was thinking about watching the Olympics because the climbing was in the Olympics for the first time, wasn't it? And they were scampering. Yes. It does feel like they are going rather quickly up the wall, but you're right, not quite at the bell. That is a good analogy. I mean, we're just about out of time. I think, you know, a few final takeaways maybe from me and then Manal, a couple of points from you, I think. It's a really interesting discussion. It shows just how many open points there are. Um, I think for me, the area of incentives is still interesting, how they're going to manage that and balance that with green agenda, climate change policy, et cetera, that will be interesting to see. So what's in the carve-outs? And then I suppose the other piece is that accounting bit. I, I actually think a lot of CFOs are going to be listening to that quite hard and thinking, is this a rework of the numbers? How are we going to manage that? What's what's the extra piece? But certainly, you know, tax directors that I talk to are, are very alive to these issues and kind of keen to keep impressed with it. They can see something's going to happen, so they're keeping close to it. I think for me, um, and I agree with all of that, I think for me, uh, one of the, the interesting and, and more complex pieces of this is the the timing of different countries' legislative processes to be able to say that you're moving forward. I think there's a lot of eyes on the U.S. right now who's made commitments that were essential to getting the agreement. Those commitments were made by the administration. Um, the administration can't deliver that alone. They need Congress. And so there's, there's a process going um, on right now uh, within the U.S. to introduce changes. And I think there's a little bit of a looking as is the U.S. going to be able to deliver 
on the, the, the commitments that they made from a congressional perspective in time to keep this moving. And, and, you know, obviously the U.S. legislative process is not the only consideration. Even when you get agreement, you're going to see for this to be stood up simultaneously. You have to look at different parliamentary processes and rules across the, uh, the globe. That will be tricky to coordinate to get this stood up. So that's something to watch and, and will be of, of great interest, I think, for businesses who are looking to see, okay, so when is this live for me? <laughs> no, that's a good point. I hadn't even really thought about that. So actually, yes, but thinking about the legislative timetable, how that, obviously with your background, that's exactly the thing you would you would think about too. Well, no, thank you so much for this discussion, Manal. I think as people can tell, we probably could have kept going. But I think yeah. we've hit most of the highlights we wanted to say. So we'll look forward to continuing to check in with the listeners in the months ahead, because I think there'll be quite a lot um, to talk about. But thank you very much, Manal. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Melissa. It was great fun. Melissa and Manal, on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a really interesting discussion to listen to. Join us again next time and please feel free to email us with any questions or suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear more about at tax at kpmg.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>